Welcome back. We are here with Jeff Bruce on his second time, second appearance. Thanks for having me back, Kurt. Appreciate on the podcast. It. Welcome back. And we're here to talk about fantasy football this time. Woo! Tis and the season. I don't know about your personal philosophy, but when it comes to fantasy football, I, I'm, I'm under the impression that if you're just looking to draft a solid team, make no moves, you're not going to win. And I'm to the point where... I feel like half the roster I draft, I'm going to end up throwing out anyway. And so a lot of times I will look to these high-risk, high-reward players. How would you say your philosophy goes? Uh, Probably, I guess, a little bit of a hybrid between what it sounds like you're talking about and the the kind of cowardly go-by-the-rankings type strategy where (laughs) first few rounds, I think you definitely want to get guys that you know can contribute. Um, but to me, fantasy leagues are won and lost in rounds like eight through 11. Cause there's always somebody who picks up some like, um, platoon running back, you know, mm. who's not expected to be that good there. And they end up being like a top eight running back on the season. There's and he always pulls up or you take a chance on the suspended Tom Brady and he ends up not suspended. And that person wins. Exactly. I mean, there's always somebody, there's at least one player who at the end of the season, ESPN or somebody will post some article saying like 70% of fantasy football winners this year had this player on their team. And it's almost never a top, you know, first two round pick. It's Mm -hmm. almost always somebody who just happened to explode out of the woodwork that you weren't expecting. So I think that your philosophy makes sense, but that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm going to take somebody completely out of left field in the second round. Sure. Speaking of left field, <laughs> let's even start with some of like the, the different risks. So we'll get to sleepers at, at a little later on. Let's start with rookies. So guys we don't maybe don't know too much about yet. What are some of the biggest rookies, if any, that, that we should be targeting? Well, I mean, the first one is, is Ezekiel Elliott, of course. Um, probably going to be a, a top 10 fantasy back. Could obviously completely disappoint because it's fantasy football and we've all had our hearts broken like that. But um, outside of him, it's interesting. I, I'm i not really a college football expert that much, but I don't really see a lot of rookies that I would be excited about drafting anywhere in the first even like 11 or 12 rounds. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that maybe uh, I would be willing to take a chance on is uh, Sterling Shepard of the New York Giants. Um, because that team is a team that has been begging for a second wide receiver for seems like two or three seasons now. I don't remember the last time Victor Cruz was healthy, but it seems like mm-hmm. I was still in college then, so that was a long time ago. But um, you know, Ruben Randall was supposed to be that guy, and he wasn't. And now they have this uh, pass-heavy offense, and you have that guy, Odell Beckham Jr., on the other side, who's going to draw two, maybe three guys. On any given play. So the door is open for somebody uh, on the Giants to step in and actually have a big impact. Maybe it's him, but we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. I, I think I still believe in the Victor Cruz. You still I'm, believe I'm, in I'm, the salsa? I'm still riding that train. <laughs> and even though I said the exact same thing last year <laughs> and watched him sit on my bench the entire season <laughs> and hurt for it, I'm not ready high to risk, give, high reward. <laughs> I'm not ready to give up on it quite yet. Um, I'm with you, though. It, overall, just a weak wide receiver class. And I do feel there's way too much emphasis in the combine on 40 times. But I think that was the biggest reason a lot of these wide receivers dropped is they're really worried about getting separation from 
these top NFL corners. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one name I knew um, was uh, Laquan Treadwell mm-hmm. at Minnesota. Sure. I feel the more just the more weapons you can put around Teddy Bridgewater, the better he's going to get. And they've tried. I mean, frankly, ex- he could use any weapons. At this point. Exactly. <laughs> and they've experimented with a lot of older players like Greg Jennings, Mike Wallace. <laughs> and I think at some point it's just going to click with, with that offense. And um, again, the more weapons, the better. Sure. You you mentioned Zeke before. I saw it was at the time I thought a ridiculous headline, but I'm starting to think about it more. Would you ever take Ezekiel Elliott number one overall in fantasy football? Oh, number one overall? Oh no, absolutely not number one overall. Um, I've heard people talk about maybe taking him first round. Um, I I don't think I would do that even necessarily because. You know, to me, the one of the best things that Zeke has going for him isn't even Zeke. It's the Cowboys O line. Mm-hmm. You know that that's what is getting people to think he's going to be elite this year. He's he was an incredible talent in college. Nobody can deny it. Even people who hate the Buckeyes, like everyone in Wisconsin, probably. But um, except Kyle Wiggins. Except Kyle Wiggins. <laughs> that's two episodes in a row. I'm going to shout out to Kyle Wiggins. You're welcome. But anyway. um, I mean. Only seven rookies have topped 200 fantasy points in standard scoring since 2001, since we were 11 years old. So um, I apologize for revealing your age. I don't know if you were trying to. (laughs) You're okay. But um, (laughs) we're going to cut that out anyway. In any case, in any case, um, to me, it's just, it's too much of a risk. It's too much of a risk. And running backs in general this year are risky. Um, you know, it's become more and more apparent in recent seasons that even outside of PPR, even in standard scoring, uh, wide receivers are just with the pass heavy offenses that dominate the league right now, they're able to contribute, you know, just as much upside and they, they generally have a a higher floor if they're elite. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see in most of your leagues, say you're in a 12 team league, if you see at least half, if not more of those first round picks be wide receivers this year. So to me, that's why Zeke is being seen as potentially first round. It's not because he's that good or people are expecting that much. It's because the rest of the running back position is very thin. Well, I think it's that reason why, personally, I'm a big fan of always taking a running back in the first. Just because while there are certainly elite receivers, I do believe that if you're not going to get one of those absolute top receivers, it gets really mixed when you start looking at all the twos and all the threes out there. And, and I think you're really just splitting hairs at that point. So I think you made a good point where with the Cowboys offensive line, you can really throw anyone back there and they're going to be successful. And that's why a lot of people are excited about Ezekiel Elliott. And I mentioned I'm really big on the high risk, high reward. So if I'm sitting there at even like the fourth or fifth pick, I might take a chance on him. I, I mean, for for many, many years, I've always adhered to the philosophy of two running backs in the first two rounds. That's just what you do. But this year, it's just so thin. It's just so thin. It's gotten to the point where people were reaching last year in the first round for guys like Jeremy Hill, who were, you know, mm-hmm. had a pretty had a great rookie season, but he was still, you know, it's still one of those situations where the guy had a good rookie season. And that's it. You know, there there isn't much safety there. And, you know, as one of the people who got bit in the butt by that. Uh, mm. <laughs> I, I don't like having my butt bit, so I'm gonna I'm gonna probably go for a safe bet, elite wide receiver mm-hmm. at that position, say like nine ten in the first round, then uh, a reach at running back, 
which I consider Zeke to be at that point. You bringing up Jeremy Hill that actually leads right into I want to do a little bit more of a rapid fire, but I want to talk about some of these players. Really, like, are you in? Are you are you buying? Are you selling some of these guys? And you mentioned Jeremy Hill. How about his counterpart, Gio Bernard? Find him a little bit later, especially considering like a PPR league catches a lot of balls in the flat, a lot of screen plays. Buy or sell Gio Bernard? I buy. Uh, you know, if you're if you're talking like fifth, sixth round, absolutely, I'm in on on Gio. Um, I play PPR generally, so mm-hmm. that obviously makes him even more valuable. But he was uh, he was their leading rusher last season too, if I'm not mistaken. So it wasn't just. Uh, it wasn't just him coming out of the backfield to catch passes. He was showing himself off as a runner as mm-hmm. well. Well, by the end of it, I think they were really playing the hot hand as well. And it got to the point where Jeremy Hill was on the bench, and they just kept feeding him the ball. And it really worked out yeah, for the fancy owners that took a chance on him. Jump the quarterback. Actually, two from the NFC North here. Matt Stafford without Megatron. I mean, he's going to fall in the rounds. We, we know that for sure. But to me, he's he's still by uh, he's a low buy. You know, like if there's always quarterbacks that you get to like round nine or ten, and you don't have a quarterback yet, and you realize all the elite quarterbacks are gone, and you're just kind of scanning, being like, okay, who here could I actually you know look at in my starting lineup and not just hate myself for drafting him? <laughs> and and he's one of those guys. Uh, I think he still is, even without Megatron. Um, you know, he's he's. I think he's still a uh, top half quarterback in the league, and I think he'll probably end up top fifteen in fantasy. So, if you really need somebody and it's in the mid to late rounds, I think you know what you're getting with him. I'm okay with it. And you brought up a good point too, where there's always the elite quarterbacks that get taken first two rounds, and there's this huge drop off. And then towards those later rounds, you see guys like Matt Stafford. Matt Ryan, they can still be in pass-heavy offenses. They can still grab late. I like Matt Stafford, and again, he's one of my guys, even like the Victor Cruz, where I'll, I'll take him even though sometimes it's going to hurt me. But I actually think there's part of me that might help that he, Megatron is gone. And I think back to Cam Newton last year when Kelvin Benjamin mm-hmm. was injured. Sure. Because he just had... Um, you know, a season where he just threw to Benjamin as much as he possibly could, much like Stafford would with Calvin Johnson. I figured For every the time last they seven got seven seasons. <laughs> exactly. Like anytime they got within the 30, they had to take a shot to him in the end zone. And I think there's gonna be this weird epiphany in the offense where they realize that we have other options, and one, they're gonna have to find the guy who's gonna have to step up. But is it Golden Tate? I don't know. But right, exactly. But I think there's just gonna be a lot more opportunities for him to really show off what kind of quarterback he is. Sure. Other quarterback, <laughs> Jay Cutler, buy or sell? Sell. To me, he's on the downturn of his career. He may, Some would say he has been for, for a couple seasons now. But um, the thing with Jay Cutler is, while he hasn't always had a good head on his shoulders, he's always had an incredible arm. Um, but if that tool starts to go away, in addition to you know the fact that basically all the weapons he had uh, over the past five seasons, have have started to go away. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not sold on Jay Cutler even in, you know, maybe I'd take him like 14th round <laughs> if I just somehow still had no quarterback. Well, well like you mentioned, Brandon Marshall <laughs> gone, Martellus Bennett gone, Matt Talking Forte shit. gone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alshon Jeffrey, you don't know how healthy he's going to be. I think really the only upside is if Kevin White, 
who was drafted in the first round, was injured all of last year. They really don't even know what they have out of him. If he can just come on the scene, Jeffrey grabs double teams, and White can just explode against single coverage. I, I think there might be a silver lining there, but uh, but I'm with you. It's going to be tough to bet on that. The toughest thing about Jay Cutler's life the last five seasons, besides <laughs> being Jay Cutler, has been his O-line. He's had great weapons around him at times, but... Any quarterback in the league, even ask Aaron Rodgers at times, if if your O-line can't give you three seconds, it doesn't matter what you have around to throw to you because you're not going to be able to do it. Mm. Move over to tight ends quick. Two of them for you. This one I think is interesting. Jimmy Graham. Buy or sell? I'm going to buy, actually. I think, that, I think that Seattle showed that they can be a passing team last season. You know, lacking Marshawn Lynch the whole season, it seemed like, and, and even Thomas Rawls had, I don't remember, maybe one or two good games, and then he was gone. Um, you know, to me, Russell Wilson showed that he is truly an elite quarterback last season. And when you make Doug Baldwin look as good <laughs> as Russell Wilson did last season, Doug Baldwin caught 14 touchdowns last season. That's the same amount as T.O. used to catch in uh, in Philly. Was that just one season he was in Philly? I don't even remember. But the point is that uh, <laughs> you know he made Doug Baldwin look elite. And if you make Doug Baldwin look elite, if Jimmy Graham is able to come back and be healthy and be even 90% of what he was before, yeah, I'm, I'll take that. Mm-hmm. I hate that we're green so much, but I'm with you. I, <laughs> again, I like the high risk, high reward. You know, it injured a lot, and I think a lot can be attributed to the fact that you, you never know with a new system and... Now he's gotten a chance to just get acclimated, used to the system, and even though he's hurt, he can still study film. You know, I, I'm I'm buying Jimmy Jimmy Graham, especially late too, considering back when he was in New Orleans, from like a fantasy standpoint, he was going in the second round. Yeah, and now you can steal him late. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. definitely some high value there. The other tight end, new to the Green Bay Packers, Jared Cook. Well, um, not completely sold. Uh, I'll tell you that much. You know, Jared Cook is kind of a nemesis of mine. In uh, <laughs> I feel like at least three times in the last few seasons, he's single-handedly had like one big game against me in fantasy and kind of wrecked me. But um, that's the thing about Jared Cook is that he has these occasional big performances that make people remember his name. But otherwise, he really hasn't been a steady contributor throughout his time in the league, uh, at least in recent seasons. And the other thing that, that's interesting to think about is that I've heard all the time people talk about, oh, if Aaron Rodgers only had a reliable tight end, if, if Aaron Rodgers only had a good tight end to throw to. That makes me wonder how well they'll click together this season. Because Aaron Rodgers isn't used to his tight end being a primary target. Even back when Jermichael Finley was playing, him and Jermichael Finley you know, didn't have that great of a connection. It wasn't a Philip Rivers, Antonio Gates level connection or anything like that. So I don't know how many opportunities he's actually going to get. One thing I will give to him is that I think he's a pretty good run blocker. So I think he'll be on the field for the majority of snaps. And that's something that's worth looking into with tight ends because at this point, you have so many guys who just shift in for passing downs or running downs. That's what makes Gronk so valuable is that he's a great run blocker as well. But for Jared Cook, um, I'd say look elsewhere if you can. But I guess kind of like uh, Matt Stafford, if you find yourself in the 12th round and he's still around, which won't happen in Wisconsin, <laughs> um, go ahead and go for it. I'm actually going to disagree with you on this one. I'm, I'm going to buy in Jared Cook. Now, 
Grant, it's going to be later on, and it's going to be more of that value pick, but you mentioned he's going to be on the field a lot. I, I agree with that. I think with the combination of him and Richard Rodgers, I think the Packers are going to run a lot more double tight end sets, and if it's a standard league, I may go against him, but especially in a PPR league, I don't know if he's going to have those big gains, because I... You mentioned Rodgers not having that great tight end. I think they tried a lot deep down the seam to guys like Jermichael Finley. Jared Cook doesn't have that kind of speed anymore like when he first came into the league. But I really see him as that guy, like, hey, third and short, run five yards, turn around, get the catch, and can be a great red zone target as well. So if nothing else, he's like the uh, Mercedes Lewis of the past five <laughs> years where he catches one, one catch a game, but it's for a touchdown. It's going to get you those points. Last one, and this one might be interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll be curious to see what you say. Buy or sell any Broncos receiver? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, obviously, they're both going to go by both. Of course, I mean Demarius Thomas and Emmanuel Sanders. Obviously, they're, they're both going to go much later than they have for the past five years, and, and maybe even going back to... Uh, you know, when Demarius Thomas still had Tim Tebow throwing to him. Mm. But, you know, Mark Sanchez, he's not good, but he can throw a slant pattern. And that's like, you know, 70% of Emmanuel Sanders' catches. He's great after the catch. So is Demarius Thomas. If they're still lingering around in the in the fourth, I'd take a shot on him. But no, neither one is worthy of being considered elite in terms of fantasy at this point. In terms of value... Like um, some of the other players we have mentioned, like like Jimmy Graham before, Demarius Thomas is a guy that typically go in bigger leagues late first, early second. Of course. And yeah, now you might be able to get him in a third or fourth. And I'm actually going to buy on the Broncos receivers. And I wrote an article on Mark Sanchez when Nick Foles went down for the Eagles and Sanchez was coming to start. And my article is, this is it. This is the comeback. This, this is what his whole career comes down to, and, and it's going to work out. Well, obviously, it didn't go out as well as I remember posting on Facebook, I can't wait to see everyone remember <laughs> that Mark Sanchez sucks. <laughs> but anyway, uh, my point is, I'm a huge Peyton guy, but Peyton couldn't throw a ball to the sideline last season. It was just wounded ducks, and look how far he was able to get them. And I just think of if that offense could be that productive with – a wounded duck Peyton, <laughs> I think Mark Sanchez might be able to move him down the field. And no. if nothing else, I think their defense lost a few. And so I think they're going to be in more battles. And if nothing else, fall behind in games. So Mark Sanchez is forced to throw the ball more and can yeah, throw to guys like Demarius yeah. Thomas. I'm actually going to buy some of these guys I'm later. Okay it's a that. high value. I'm okay with that. Yeah. And last question for you. We talked about rookies before. Who are some of your biggest sleepers that you're going to try to target? Well, um, you know, to me, there's, first of all, I've, everyone has different definitions exactly of what mm. sleeper means, whether it means a fifth round guy who will give you second round value or a ninth round who will give you fifth. For me, um, you know, I've, I've listed a couple across different categories. I still, I, I would classify Eddie Lacy as a sleeper coming into mm. this year, honestly. Last year, he was a consensus top three, top four pick, and obviously he didn't deliver. But, that's one of those situations, a rare situation, where it's very easy to pinpoint what one of the big problems was. 
and he's lost that problem, and it's called 60 pounds or whatever he lost. <laughs> it looks like 60 pounds. So I'm, I'm willing to say, you know, he's going to be the undisputed number one back again in an elite offense in the NFL. I think that he'll probably still be around. Well, in Wisconsin, maybe not. But in right. general, I think he'll still be around third round, maybe, early third. And See, I, think, I think in this state, I don't, I don't think oh, he's, in this state, no, I don't think he's making not. it past the second round. I mean, in this state, Aaron Rodgers doesn't make it past the third pick in any draft. Right. But uh, other than that, I think uh, Marcus Wheaton in Pittsburgh mm. with Martavis Bryant being out for the year. Uh, that's such a high-octane passing offense. Marcus Wheaton has been such a great number three receiver for them. I think we could really see him put up a big year. T.Y. Hilton had a down year last year, but, you know, with all the injuries to, uh, to Andrew Luck, you know, that, that's to be expected. So with a fully healthy Andrew Luck, presumably knock on wood, there's, there's potential for, you know, first, second round value on a guy who's probably going to fall to a fourth round maybe. And then um, one that's probably much more of a reach is uh, Travis Benjamin out in mm. San Diego. That guy had a little bit of a breakout season last year. I think he almost had 1,000 yards, and he was in Cleveland. And everyone knows that nobody gets to catch balls in Cleveland because nobody can throw balls in Cleveland. And he still managed to almost put up 1,000 yards, and now he's got Phillip Rivers thrown to him. I think that he's a legit wide receiver, too, or maybe flex in hmm. a lot of leagues. Interesting. I always get scared with any San Diego receiver because I agree where they just sling the ball all over the place, but I think they do a really good job of – equaling the payload in that case and you never really have this one guy that's going to take all the catches and really just burst out all the points and it's always from week to week and so in terms of san diego receivers it's just such high risk you know me i like my yeah, high risk but it's always too much risk. <laughs> they're a little bit of a junior version of the saints sure. in that way yeah can't trust any of them <laughs> some of my sleepers i'm gonna go even more risky because you know i like that and <laughs> Um, it's really going to the suspension and injury club. We mentioned before sure. Kevin White from the Bears. I, I think that's actually going to be a, a good one for them. I, I think Jay Cutler is going to sling a lot to him. Jeffrey, who might be hurt, or if he's in, going to get double coverage. Kevin White's going to have a lot of single opportunities. I always take a chance on Arian Foster. Uh, I, I do. I do. Knowing I had Jay Ajayi on my list for, for sleepers because I think Arian Foster is done. But I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Even if I know he's only going to play four games, I'm going to win those four weeks with him in my PPR. <laughs> the last one. Josh Gordon. Again. Of course. I, I, I think he's going to be on a team for two weeks and be suspended again. Well, for me, Josh Gordon doesn't even qualify as a sleeper because everyone knows about him. You're going to see him flying off waiver wires in late September. It's just a, you know, it's a game of chicken between everybody being like, I don't want to be the one who picks him up too early mm-hmm. or something. But yeah, to me, yeah, absolutely, Josh Gordon is on everybody's radar. Dude. Well, uh, thanks again for joining the show, Jeff. It was a great experience. We're going to have to... Uh Catch up sometime over a few beers downtown Milwaukee. But uh, no, thanks again. And where can everyone reach you? Uh, well, Twitter handle is Jeff Bruce now, spelled the weird way G E O F F. Everything else uh, as you'd expect. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it and uh, had fun. All right. Thanks again, Jeff. All right. And we're back. And I'd like to welcome to the show once again, Joe Bodecker. Joe Bo, thanks for coming back, man. Appreciate it. Anytime. Yeah. Yeah. Had a good discussion about A Rod. In episode number one, a few weeks back, and want to bring you back because I want to talk about the AL East once again, and somehow you've become our AL East expert overnight. I love and the Red Sox, so 
and you're, you're a big Red Sox guy, so I wanted to talk about my boy D Price. As you know, I have a history with the Tampa Bay Rays, so I wanted to, you know, keep following him, even though he's on the, the dreaded Red Sox, but I'll tune in from time to time to see how he's doing. And they won a World you. Series, though, unlike the Rays, so. Well, we're going to cut this out because that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just want to ask you, like, what's wrong with David Price? What's going on, man? It's on this big money deal, and. Not, he's not performing. Can't pitch. I mean, he, his mechanics are messed up. He's changing his pitches. I mean, he's he's moved away from his fastball, went more to his other pitches. But in all honesty, and again, this I, I don't mean to bash your raise here, right? But he's with a big money team. I mean, and a very big money team, a team that wants to win. And I think a lot of it's, it's pressure. I mean, if you look at his stats that he has, I mean, he's 9-8. and eight. That's not good. That's not top money starter. He's got a 4.34 ERA. I mean, that's worse than Jimmy Nelson. Mm-hmm. That's like Willie Peralta territory. I mean, to reference some Brewers pitchers. It, and his his war is a 1.7. But I think Price did have a good couple years, but really, is he really that good of a pitcher? I think that's what the bigger question is. I know you're going to argue that he is, and <laughs> you know he's one of the best pitchers out there, and he's definitely a good pitcher, but I don't think he's ace material. You mentioned before the pressure, and I think that has something to do with it. Even just being in a bigger market, tougher media, you name it. But I don't know if that necessarily just explains the drop in velocity. And his fastball has gone up and down, even in some of his earlier years, his rookie years. But he went from pitching an average fastball of ninety four point two miles an hour last season, to from ninety four down to ninety two point nine this year and i don't know if that's pressure or is it just more old age and he's always been he throws a lot of pitches but david price lives and dies on the fastball and ability just to paint the corners and when that's not working the the whole game goes down so you mentioned how mechanics can certainly be one of it but i think that drop in velocity is just what jumps out to me and i think that can just affect your whole repertoire and how batters are going up against you yeah, but I don't think I don't think the drop in his velocity is a big thing if you can paint the corners, which seems to be an issue for him. And yeah, you could say his fastball's always been his best pitch, but everybody throws a fastball. It's what your other pitches are. Those are the ones that, you know, get you the strikeouts, get you the whiffs, get you the misses. I mean, if you're looking at his, his his pitch breakdown this year, he's pitched his fastball 883 times, which is more than any of his pitches, which should be expected because it's your number one pitch. But people are batting 273 against his fastball. Now you move down to his changeup, which is his second most pitch pitch at 556. People are batting 231. That's a huge drop. So, most of the time, first pitch in 
an at bat, what are you going to get? Mm-hmm. You're going to get fastball. a fastball. Yep. Is it really the drop in the speed that's the issue, or is it more the location that's becoming the issue? Mm-hmm. He's not pinpointing it like he used to be able to. Well, especially if batters know it's coming, they they know he's going to hound him with fastballs. And that's a good point, too, where doesn't, at the end of the day, if they know what's coming, it doesn't matter if it's 92 or 94. Fastball's coming. Let's swing free. Green light. Yeah. Try to get base. Well, the only person that's not going to swing on a fastball first pitch really throughout the league universally is Mike Trout. I mean, Mike Trout lets the first pitch go every time. I mean, it, pretty much in all of his at-bats, he's not an Alfonso Soriano where he's going to jump on the first pitch when he knows it's coming. Mike Trout lets that first one go. He wants you to miss on that first one. Because so then that second one, he'll take the hit. But Price, he, you know, he's pitching this ball and watching him. I mean, because obviously I'm a Red Sox fan, so I watch him every chance I can that they're on TV. Um, I don't live in Boston. I wish I did. But, you know, the, the kid and the woman probably wouldn't like that. <laughs> um, sure. But he's, you know, he's throwing these two pitches. And I know as we had talked a little off air, you had mentioned he's throwing his cutter more. Mm-hmm. Too. I mean, he's he's relying on this cutter, which isn't a bad pitch to throw. If you can spot it right, because it does cut in. It looks like a fastball, but it's got that late break to it where it just comes in on a batter. But he needs to stop throwing it because right in front of my face, people are batting 324 against it. And, and that was really my question for you is, out of all the other pitches, so let's say it is a velocity problem or even just mechanic location, whatever's wrong with the fastball, the increase in the amount of pitches, his curve and his change, he's thrown just as much. It's really only the cutter that he's been relying more on with a 4% increase. I understand that he probably wants to keep the velocity up on most pitches, but I don't. why is he picking the cutter as opposed to trying to differentiate um, and split those pitches up evenly? Well, I mean... you. You don't want to split them up too evenly. Sure. I mean, you got to have you know your pitch that that's your go-to pitch, which in his case should your be put-up pitch. Yeah, it should be his changeup. I mean, that's the pitch he should be throwing the most. Um, you know, to strike people out at least. But I think the thing with the cutter is he doesn't have a lot of home runs off his cutter. People are only hitting three home runs on the year currently off of his cutter. And I think part of that, too, is where he's playing. I mean, he's playing in a stacked division. He's also playing at Fenway. Mm-hmm. I mean, Fenway's got short fences. I mean, if you can hit down that right field line, it's a short, short wall, and it's not far out. I mean, I love the green monster, but you, you can hit a long fly ball, and it, it's landing on top of the monster if it's high enough. That was going to be my next question for you. Do you really feel that? Yeah, even just the change in ballpark, because not only, you know, the difference between, you know, Tropicana Field and Fenway, but like especially, he had fantastic numbers finishing up last season with Toronto, and that's a huge ballpark. Yeah, I mean, the the ballpark makes the difference. I mean, look at look at the Rockies, you know, and, and you can even tie in a Brewers conversation here, you know, for the people that listen in Wisconsin, I mean... The Brewers have a AAA team that's based in Colorado. They've learned after like five months, which I don't know why it took them so long, you don't send pitchers that are struggling to Colorado because the ball just flies more, and it's a smaller park. And unfortunately, 
the change in the scenery, like you said, I mean, Tam- or Tampa Bay. I mean, it's not it's not a large park, mm-hmm. but it's larger than Fenway, yeah. and Rogers Center, a lot larger than Fenway. The park definitely makes a difference, along with the pressure mm-hmm. of being the number one starter, and along with the pressure of the Red Sox had this staff in place with Price to lead it off and. Know, Buckholz and all these people, and they've all floundered behind him. I mean, the only one that can pitch is Stephen Wright. That's because he's throwing a knuckleball. <laughs> that just brings up an interesting question in general, where the Red Sox seem to draft and develop so well, and we definitely even saw that at the deadline, where they're fine giving up prospects for big trades because they know their minor league system is so stacked. But when you're able to draft and develop so well... Why go out and pay this ridiculous amount of money to these 30-year-old pitchers? It, just in terms of value, is it better to go, say, like the New York Mets route, where you just get these studs homegrown and just try to make a run at it? But pitchers are so hit and miss. I mean, a position player, you know, you can, you can pay a position player. So, like, if you look at the people that have been signed into their 30s, I mean... There's not a lot of success overall. I mean, you have Scherzer in Washington. He's doing good. He signed a deal in his 30s, a high-money deal. But look at Grinke. I mean, Grinke signed this huge deal, and what has he done in Arizona? He hasn't done anything. I mean, you look at position players, you have Votto. Votto's been hurt on and off. You know, he finally resurged himself last year. He's come back this year decently, but he's on the Reds. So, I mean, nobody cares about the Reds. Um, you have Pujols. You can draft and develop these position players, and you have a better chance. Because a pitcher, all it takes is one surgery. Tommy John, you're injured. And mechanics-wise, there's more into pitching than there is into hitting. I mean, hitting, you can miss where you're going to hit. Like, you can miss your stride, and you can still get a bloop single. In pitching, you let your release point go too late, too early on a certain pitch. It's a ball. Or it's right down the pipe. Mm-hmm. And it's like it goes back to like we talked at the beginning. If he's throwing a fastball, release points off. Instead of painting that outside corner on a right-handed batter where he's actually pitching really well against batters average-wise, he puts it right down the middle. And they're hitting the ball for a mile. I think a lot, too, just depends on your confidence in your minor league coaching and who you're confident in developing. And so, uh, obviously, you know my story coming uh, and working for the Tampa Bay Rays and some of the conversations um, we would hear from the baseball ops group would be that they are so confident in training and developing these pitchers that they'd be fine focusing on position players for like the first 10 picks of a particular draft. Like players, for example, like James Shields, they grabbed in the 16th round. Now he's obviously having a really poor example year. right now. <laughs> Very tough year, but think about when they had them. All these young guys coming through when they had David Price, James Shields, a young Matt Moore coming in, Alex Cobb. And that's why a lot of these guys have gone on and left since, but it's because they're so confident still and the pitchers in the minor league system, that they're confident letting these guys walk because 
they know their pitching is set. Well, and the Red Sox have never really been big with developing pitching. I mean, you know, they get these pitchers from different organizations, either in trades or in, you know, free agency pickups. Whereas you look at their position players, they're stacked. You have, uh, you know, Moogie Betts, Jackie Bradley Jr. who came on. I mean, these are guys where I think you make a valid point. The Rays are more comfortable with getting these lower-end pitching prospects and developing them, whereas the Red Sox know, well, we really haven't developed many good pitching prospects into actual front-end starters, top-of-the-line aces, you know, somebody like a Chris Sale or like David Price used to be in Tampa. Um and they would rather just focus on, all right, let's grab all these position players that we know can get the job done. We know they can hit, they're raw, but their talent's just immense. They have such a high ceiling. And one of them's going to turn out, and ideally. If, yeah, and, and if one does turn out, but you don't need him, if you're backlogged at a position like outfield, for example, well, let's flip them for Chris Sale. Why not flip them for a guy that we know can pitch? But, like you, you know, it goes back to the market. Well, you're in a bigger market now. You're in a market that expects you to win year in and year out. It's not something you want to, you know, it's not like you're in Milwaukee or Tampa or where, you know, you have that year and you, you win and it's like, oh, yay, we won. No, you're expected to win every year in Boston. So are you in the long haul for David Price or are you, let's sell him now? Let's trade him next season. Or do you want to see him for a few more years and see what he can do? I want to see him for a few more years. I mean, he's only 30. Um, so he's not that old. I mean, it, mm-hmm. in a pitcher sense, he's old because, I mean, he's thrown so many pitches. Um, the part that scares me, though, is still, I mean, throughout his postseason career, he's horrible. I mean... His ERA throughout the postseason is a, you know, it's a 5.0 he had, you know, last year. And he has a 5.12 career postseason ERA. It's not an ERA you want for your stud to go out there and pitch. A lot of it has to do with nerves. But he could give up three runs and the Red Sox could still, with their power hitting and Everybody they have as a position-wise, they could get him over the hump and get him the win. But when he's shelling out six earned runs mm-hmm. in a start, it's a big deficit to come back from. I'd be okay with him staying around, give him another year or two. doesn't work then. It's going to be hard to find somebody to eat a seven-year, $217 million contract. That's a tough find out there. Well, appreciate the insight, Joe. Thanks again for coming on the show. Uh, tell them once again where they can find you. Well, I'm on Twitter. Handles J. That's B-O-E-D-E-C-K-E-R-J. Anybody wants to talk, I'm there to listen. He is our AL East subject matter expert. We talked Yankees two weeks ago. We're talking Red Sox this time. And no mention of... Tebow and Johnny Manziel until I just ruined it and...
You mentioned him this time. Not I, me. Not I, me. I ruined the podcast. Next time we'll hop into the NL Central. <laughs> we can move over there, too. That was good to be. Anytime, buddy. Thanks again. All right. Thank you.